You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? How's life? What you doing? Are you working? Are you striking? Are you getting ready to strike? When's the last time you had a job? When's the last time you were paid adequately for your job? Uh, a lot of this is going through everybody's heads right now. These are the questions that is plaguing the industry, and you're lo- watching how something as simple as not paying the correct rates for the creatives at the top affects the trickle down effect that affects everybody that works in our business. And uh, the more people that I talk to, the more people that I hang out with. I mean, I just spent last week at Cinegear out here in Los Angeles, and I was hanging out with not only vendors, not only the people that support our industry with gear and how nervous they were, but also uh, Cinegear just seemed to be the busiest this year. It seemed to be, uh, you know, a, a yard full of uh, directors of photography, cinematographers, all looking up like like prairie dogs going, did you get work? Do you got work? Who's working? Who's not working? What's happening? And everybody has their theories on how long this strike is going to last, on uh, whether or not the DGA is going to join the strike. Apparently, SAG is definitely going to join the strike. And everybody kind of knows why, right? But no one really has the real answers why. And you've heard me talk about my theories on the show and talk with other folks on the show. Um, and I've been I've been warning you. I've, I've, I've been on the hunt for this. I want to get somebody on the show who actually knows what the fuck is going on to a larger extent, beyond just the strike, beyond the simple issues um, that, uh, by simple issues, I don't mean to d- diminish them at all, but beyond the immediate issues of writers, the immediate issues of, of actors and creators. Um, but I want to talk about the larger issues uh, with business. And and uh, we re- we're hopefully, we're going to get into monopolies. We're going to get into you know, uh, capitalism <laughs> in today's show. And I've never claimed to be a person that uh, knows everything, right? I'm a person that is curious about a lot of different things. I try to have as many conversations as possible. And the benefit of our show is that I can get folks on who know a hell of a lot more than I do that have spent years and years studying economics, understanding Uh, politics. And, uh, you know, they just like today's guest, Matt Stoller's on the show today. Uh, And uh, this guy is the guy that uh, I want to talk to. I originally heard about Matt because I read that article, Time to Break Up Hollywood. If you guys have been listening to the show, you heard me reference this article. Uh, He goes in deep and talks about um, how Hollywood has been changing. The consolidation of Hollywood, how everything's been consolidated down to just a few companies, how one would even say it's becoming a monopoly, right? Uh, Stand by as this helicopter breezes over us. Um, But it's a great article. If you guys haven't read it yet, I'll make sure that I put it in the description of this episode. Time to break up Hollywood. But uh, let's talk a bit about Matt. Matt is the director of research at the American Economics Liberties Project. He is the author of the Simon & Schuster book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. This guy, obviously, him and I are going to agree on a lot of different things, um, which Business Insider called one of this year's best books on how to rethink capitalism and improve the economy. Very excited 
uh, to talk to Matt because uh, he has done the research. Um, another great article that I'm sure we're going to reference in today's conversation is the slow death of Hollywood, which is interesting as well. Uh, in today's issue, I'm going to write about the radical consolidation of power in Hollywood, which is slowly strangling the capacity to make great commercial art. Interesting episode on the way. So um, take a seat, relax. I'm, I'm going to uh, hopefully he'll be here in the next 30 minutes. I'm recording this intro as an intro before I do the show, which is a very rare thing. That's because your boy is incredibly busy this week. Uh, I have been neglecting you. I have been neglecting the show. I have multiple episodes that I'm recording all week this week. I'm also in the process of uh, working out this new idea with my writer, Will Simmons, and we're trying to get through that. And I've also got quite a few new ideas uh, for shows, believe it or not. So we'll see if I can expand the world a bit. Uh, but first, I want to give a big shout out to everybody that follows me on Instagram. I'm Mike Petchy, and it's about following the show on Instagram. That is in love with the process pod and love with the process pod on Instagram. I am going to be choosing this week um, the winner of the t-shirt, a 12km t-shirt. And I have a few t-shirts kicking around. So if you guys want to buy a 12km t-shirt and I have a few of my storyboard t-shirts still kicking around and you want it signed by me, just drop me a message on Instagram and say, hey man, I want a shirt. That's the best way to support us, the best way to support the show, best way to keep things running, and you get to walk around in a sexy 12-cam shirt. If you were hanging out during Cinegear uh, and you guys came up and talked to me, I met so many of you listeners uh, that week. I had folks coming up to me saying, hey, how can I see the movie? How can I see it? <laughs> Literally, I had people just giving me their phones and I would give you a link at the moment. And it was a lot of fun. It was fun to meet uh, in person, the people that listen to the show, the people who support the show. And uh, what a great week. Big shout out to my buddy, David Cruda and the cinematography salon. They had the biggest party at Cinegear. I have to say it was the biggest event at Cinegear. Well over 400 people, well, almost 500 and change, um, all hanging out in Silver Lake. It was a great time. We had uh, uh, Mezcal tasting. We had uh, the dudes from Atlas there, and they were showcasing their new Anamorphics, Mercury series, all that stuff was there. Um, I was there, Cruda was there, my buddy Tango, Gina was kicking around. Um, so many great folks, I was hanging out with Rick Darge. Um, so it was, a, it was a crazy week filled with booze and food, and your boy is pushing 220 now. He's still... <laughs> He's still getting bigger. Gina just rolled her eyes because now she's she's dating a chunky boy uh, because of that week. Uh, and but not just the uh, cinematography salon boys being here, but also the originators of my meat club, <laughs> which is a text group uh, that Cruda uh, and I and Greg Tango started, and it's a bunch of us that work in this industry, a lot of gaffers, a lot of grips, a lot of producers, everybody that is obsessed with barbecuing. And for years now, we have been sending each other stills and images uh, and like antagonizing each other from across the country. Who's cooking today? What are you doing? Why aren't you cooking? What are you eating? How have you not died from cholesterol yet? Those are generally what our conversations would be. Um, and for the first time in a long time, uh, and the first time here on the West Coast, 
The originators, me, Tango, and Cruda, were all in the same place. We barbecued on Saturday, maybe. And uh, what did we make? I did uh, tomahawks. So we smoked a couple of tomahawk steaks, which we rubbed with this uh, really great active charcoal rub that Cruda got us. And then we did, I did three racks of ribs. Um, which were nice. I did two baby backs and then I did a standard rack of ribs because the other guys can be a baby about baby backs. You know what? Fuck off. I think baby backs are a better rib. I think they're a superior rib. And every excuse that I hear where it's like they get dry. Well, you get shitty fucking ribs, man. My ribs weren't dry. I think baby backs is like the perfect little plate of juicy meat that you get. I know you guys like them. You know? I know the other guys, uh, you know, were complaining, but they ate them. They ate my baby backs. They also ate all the other standard ribs. But the standard ribs are so fucking boring. Ugh. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what else did we do? We did that. We did that. I feel like we... Oh, I did my chicken wings, which everybody loves. And uh, uh, great sides. Uh, David makes excellent sides. He's also really good with his protein. I kept I kept complimenting him on his sides. And he was like, so what, am I not good with my proteins? <laughs> And uh, yeah, we hung out. We got to go out. We traveled the city. We were in downtown LA. We went to Clifton's. Have you guys been to Clifton's? A crazy, uh, I guess it's like a nightclub bar. Nightclub with uh, four floors, beautifully production designed, uh, you know, uh, huge exhibits, uh, strange little nooks and crannies. Yeah, you feel like you're entering, you know, Middle Earth when you go in there. Um, and that's in downtown LA. We also found this other bar, which was like a, a speakeasy. It was like an underground punk rock bar. We were there so much, dude. They, they hit a point on like day six with like hanging out with vendors and sponsors and having beers and doing things. And day six, my body was like, dude, you're, you're poisoning yourself. Maybe you should uh, slow down a bit. So uh, yesterday, Monday, I just slept the entire day and then today i'm up i was up early bike riding today doing a little bit of workout stuff and eating a banana so i'm beginning it i will keep you guys uh in the loop on uh how much weight i lose <laughs> we'll see how it plays out but your boy's trying to get healthy again um so yeah that's what's up with me but let's not delay it any further matt is here we're going to get into it. Um, hopefully, I'll learn some new things. Hopefully, you'll learn some new things about the strike. Maybe we'll have a better understanding of what it's all about. And I think it's important that we look beyond how it's affecting you directly and look further into how it's been manipulated since it begins. And with everything that we deal with right now in our country, uh, there's always behind the scenes, there's always some sort of giant conglomerate that has gobbled up everything around it, slightly manipulating our moods. So it would be interesting to know more about it and be better informed. So if you're, if that's why you're here, get ready. Throw on those noise canceling headphones. They're already wearing them, Michael. It's an old intro. You gotta, you gotta change it. What can we change it to? Uh, sit back, relax, crank those headphones up. I'll, I'll give you a nice track. We'll get you in the mood and uh, prepare yourself for an educational episode of In Love With The Process.
Matt, thanks for being on the show. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm great. Like, look, I found you initially because um, I read that article that you wrote, Time to Break Up Hollywood, and uh, I really just fell into it. And there was so much stuff that you were talking about that I really wasn't aware of, and I feel like uh, a, a great portion of all my friends and all my coworkers and all the folks that are out there standing on the picket line really just don't know the origins of, of, of it. And I feel like it's a dangerous thing to just be focused on what's directly in front of you without understanding how everything sort of comes together, you know? Yeah, no one knows anything. It's fine. <laughs> it's all good. So, no, it's weird. I, write, I write about monopolies and business and I worked in, um, so I got my start sort of thinking about in like big business in, uh, during the financial crisis when I was a, I was a staffer for a member of Congress who was on the financial services committee. So this is 2009, right? Yeah. When everything was blowing up yep. and why well, I, I love that. I'm like the, the 2008 financial crisis, not the more recent, you know, it's like we have to date. Um, <laughs> it's but, insane. Uh, yes. <laughs> we're all you youngins out there. Um, uh, so, so at the time, like no one knew anything. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, like all the bank lobbyists, like no one knew anything and, you know, about what was blowing up. And I, I didn't know anything about, you know, nobody knew what was going on. And as it turns out, you know, I won't go into uh, really long details, but as it turns out, a lot of the financial regulatory agencies we had mm-hmm. were there for a reason. <laughs> and they were there to stop, like they put them in place after the 1929 crash, which was a thing that happened too. Yeah. And the depression. And then we forgot about that stuff. And the reason we forgot is because in the 1970s and 1980s, I'll get this relates to Hollywood. So don't worry, I'll get back to that. No, I love it. Keep but the going. Reason, the reason that um, we forgot about it is because there was an aggressive campaign in the 1970s and 80s from uh, like there were some people on the right and people on the left that argued that big big business didn't matter, that like the size of companies, that financial power didn't really matter. <laughs> and this is weird, right? If you know something about you know Anglo-American legal traditions, which I didn't know anything about and most people don't know anything about, but yeah. I've learned, you go back 400 years and you will find that from the six, early 1600s, all the way through the 1970s, um, people were like, hey, uh, big business, finance, this stuff is dangerous. You need to control it. Yeah. And, you know, they're very different forms in the 1600s, but, but that was the gist of it. And in the 1970s, there was this, you know, and we, we put together rules like antitrust rules is what that's the body of law that it's, it's kind of, the, the tip of the spear for this, but there were a bunch of regulations and rules that I wrote about in my, my article that kind of made sure that, you know, you wouldn't have conflicts of interest in business. Yeah. And so if you had big business, you know, you'd still separate them out so that you don't have somebody who's, you know, a buyer, uh, representing, you know, who's like, a, I'm, I'm, a am representing the buyers, but I'm, uh, being paid by the seller. Mm-hmm. And that's just, their conflict of interest. The same thing as like a doctor who's being paid by a pharmaceutical firm. Like we don't allow that kind of thing for a reason. And so in the, in, in, and this was like, there was a whole model of how to do this in every industry. This would be things like the Glass-Steagall Act for dealing with railroads, but we did it in, uh, we did it in, sorry, not banks. Uh, we did it in railroads. We've done it in telecommunications. We've done it in, in all different areas of media. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1970s, there was this, this the, 
there were conservatives from the Chicago school and there were these kind of like quasi socialist types um, who made the argument that, and that, that was, that were on the left, they made the argument that big bigness wasn't bad. It was efficient. And that <laughs> traditional concerns over concentrations of power and conflicts of interest were silly and out of date. And then, um, and then we, so over the course of the next like late seventies, early eighties, there was this big shock when Reagan came in and said, um, let's get rid of antitrust laws. Let's think of people not as citizens, but as consumers. That was the big ideological shift in the seventies thinking, you know, from citizen to, to, to consumer. Yeah. Um, and they were like, all right, let's get rid of these, a lot of these antitrust laws. So you saw, you know, the merger booms and things like that, like that, the movie Wall Street um, yeah. was about that era. And it was the same time as there was pulling back of all these rules on, on, on uh, finance, which is the same thing. Finance isn't dangerous. There's no such thing as power. Um, it's all just efficiency. And so in the, in that's when you really started to see like, the corporatization of Hollywood. Mm. A lot of mergers started taking place in the mid to late 80s. This was consistent with pulling back on on media rules. Um, that's when AM radio exploded because they got rid of rules against consolidation there. And then 96, you saw the, the, the Telecommunications Act. And then in the early 1990s, well, I guess I should get back to the, you know, the traditional uh, what what they did in the 80s and 90s is they undid a bunch of the rules that had been put in place in Hollywood during the 1940s and 1970s to keep the industry healthy and mm. decentralized. Mm-hmm. So those were two sets of rules in the movie in the movie business. So before TV, it was a series of um, antitrust cases that culminated in the 1948 Paramount uh, decrees, which said that studios could not own theater chains and vice versa, they had to be separated out. And they also imposed some uh, rules against how studios negotiated with theater chains. So they used to say, if you want, you know, gone with the wind, you have to take our crappy movies too. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was called like block booking. And they were like, that's not, uh, that's not legal because that prevents, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that prevents, you know, smaller studios from getting their, or independents from getting their stuff into movie theater chains. Yeah. And, that was so that's what they did to make sure that you know you had to compete on the merits of the film yeah. and that opened the door to the studio system or to the end of the studio system and to new hollywood and then tv had the same dynamic where the, there were three tv networks and uh and the tv networks you know they they produced their own stuff cuz why would you want to buy from someone else if you if you could just produce your own stuff and you have distribution power. And then the federal communication commission in the 19, 1970 um, under, you know, that old liberal Nixon uh, put together (laughs) a series of rules that the most most well-known ones were the financial syndication rules, which said that um, networks were not allowed to, um, they had to buy their primetime programming from someone else. And so this opened up a market because now all of a sudden ABC, CBS and NBC had to actually go out and buy their primetime shows. Yeah. And so they, you know, you could go in and you could pitch a show and be like, if you don't buy this show, um, I'll go sell it to ABC. And so, you know, that's when a lot of the really great shows with more, you know, diverse, um, like black characters and gay characters and stuff like that's when they came into TV because you couldn't, um, you know, NBC was afraid they would lose the, you know, well, I guess Bill Cosby's bad guy now, but you know, yeah, at that time, yeah, and, and he was like, you know, they wanted him to be a lounge, um, a lounge 
club singer or something. And he was like, no, I want to represent uh, a, a, a black family with a, you know, who's where the dad's a doctor. And if you don't let me do it, I'll sell it to a different network. And so that's the Cosby show. And you saw lots of shows like that. And then, uh, so in the, that was how the industry was structured. You had relatively, you know, you had some theater, you had theater chains, but they weren't like, you know, you didn't have a theater chain that owned a third of the theaters in the country. And so the, the first article I wrote was in 2019. It was called The Slow Death of Hollywood. And mm -hmm. I talked about how in the 80s and prior to the 80s, you had a kind of open system where you had movies that could become really successful, like Back to the Future, which was, you know, it's a wonderful, brilliant movie, but like, it's also kind of a weird movie. Yeah, um, a real hard. It's a very hard pitch <laughs> if Back to really, the Future doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It's a very strange pitch for that movie. John like, Mulaney has a whole routine about it, which is hilarious. And um, <laughs> but but it's a weird it's a weird premise of a movie. Um, it's a cool premise, but it's a weird. It's not IP, right? It's not existing IP. Yeah. that everybody knew. They had to break that movie, and they did, and they broke it um, by getting it into some theaters. And then over time, it, it you know it it did well throughout the whole summer. It wasn't just like one weekend where it yeah. did incredibly well. It did, and that's how a lot of like a lot of word of mouth you know worked, right? And movie theater owners would would be like, "Well, I'll take this movie since I saw it, or it's it's working in these other areas, so I'll bring it into my theater." And then one of the things that happened is that you did see some some consolidation of the studios starting in the late '80s, but you also saw the the um, consolidation of the of the theater chains first and so you had um like you know, a, that was amc right was that amc that was, like, yeah, that, was that was amc the the multiplex um you know uh, and part of that was a financing story you know they were just it was you know you have a theater with one or two screens and then they were like all right we'll build a 25 screen theater in a mall and and um and but these were these were now giant chains, and those giant chains were like, all right, it's like Walmart, right? Yeah, we want to put your product into all of our stores, and we want to negotiate with you, and we'll take all of the margin, and you take all of the risk, and that's how it works. Versus like negotiating with like a, a you know a bodega or a, a, a like a mom know, and pop shop, store. like a small like, yeah, we'll put it on the shelf and see if it sells, and if it does, we'll buy more, right? Yeah, that just a really big difference, and so. What uh, what they started to do is they started to say, all right, if you want to be on our thousand screens <laughs> opening weekend, you have to do a ton of advertising and that gets rid of the word of mouth dynamic. And so that's when kind of the hmm. IP became more and more important uh, and, and these kind of like the tentpole movies became more important. I mean, obviously there were always tentpole movies, but this is when, you yeah. know, the mid-market ones that could that could where you could break new ideas and new new stars and stuff those that's when they started they started to like erode and then the the bill with the clinton administration got rid of the financial syndication rules in the early 90s and that's for tv it sort of got rid of a lot of the great uh, independent production houses which immediately were like all right we're going to sell ourselves off and become part of larger conglomerates yeah and and that's when, you know, that's like the big one was when Disney bought ABC. They did that because the financial syndication rules were gone. So they could, they made content and uh, now they were like, all right, well, we'll buy, we, we can, we'll have a distribution arm, ABC, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then that's like in the 90s, you know, the Telecommunications Act allowed for a lot of consolidation. So what happened is the industry started to consolidate and that's uh, in both, uh, horizontally, which is when rivals buy rivals. So there were fewer studios mm -hmm. and then vertically and the studio started to get into distribution. 
uh, and and the chain, you know, the the theaters themselves consolidated as well. Now, it's not. I mean, it's 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 not great, right? Mm-hmm. But the corporatization is really starting to get aggressive in the late '90s and early 2000s. Then comes streaming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is like the 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 thing to understand about how industry structures work is that industry structures kind of there's like an initial stage when the technology gets introduced or this, the end, and it's kind of like you pour concrete and then it solidifies, mm-hmm. right? And at the stage when you, when the concrete is wet, it's flexible, but once it solidifies, it's, it's not. And so at the moment when the technology gets introduced, it's really important what the laws are, right? Right, and, right, 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 right. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Keep going. Yeah. No. So, so technology isn't a thing that just like we let, one of the dumbest parts of the way that we think about uh, technology is, is Americans, policymakers, and we, we've all been taught that technology is a thing that happens, and then the government comes in and regulates it, which is so, so stupid. What actually happens is people are building stuff, and they build stuff consistent with the legal regime of the time. And hmm. like technology could go in many different directions depending on what is physically possible, but also what the law says. So one quick example to give you a sense of how important this is, there was not a software industry in the early 1960s. IBM had these mainframe computers and they would give you all of your software you needed. And people were like, why would I ever buy software? That was, that'd be crazy. I buy the machine from IBM. The software is just the stuff that comes with it, right? It'd be like buying a steering wheel. It comes with the car. That's ridiculous. Right. The government had an antitrust investigation against IBM and said, you're we think that you're monopolizing a bunch of parts of this market. And so IBM said, fine, we will unbundle our software from the hardware and companies can buy software from us or they can buy it from other companies. Voila, the software industry is born. Crazy. Right? Yeah, that's nuts. Okay. Interesting. So, so think about like the multi-trillion dollar, like world changing the idea of, of different software. Mm-hmm. Like that was a thing that was created because of the law. Right now, th- that's crazy, right? But that yeah. is actually how these things. Not crazy. That is actually how. Uh, that is actually how we um, organize our our world. It's not uh, this nonsense of oh, the government comes in and regulates afterwards. It's like no, people are are building AI systems right now, consistent with what they think the law lets them do and doesn't let them do. Right. So right, it's like right, how right. to realize that? Like if they knew using large data sets was against the co- copyright. They would not be training their AI systems the way they're training them, right? But they just, they happen to think that the law is a certain way that it is. Um, right, right. Exactly and the, co- not, the copyright laws have been pretty lax, you know what I mean? So like, well, like, w- w- it, it, it's, it's regardless of whether you think copyright should be used for this or not, the point is that, that it's not clear. And so they're going down a certain path, yeah. right? And they don't have to go down that path they could go down a different path. It's just the choices that we make about data dictate. Like the, the, I'm not making a point about whether they should use copyright in a certain way or not. I'm just saying the law is actually an input into technological development. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Okay. Gotcha. So, so that's all I'm saying. Anyway. <laughs> so so what happens is streaming like starts. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows streaming is coming down the pike. There are. You know, there are ads for streaming like services in the in the 80s. I remember an ad that was like AT&T was saying, you know, the 
you'll be able to watch any movie you want whenever you want. And the company oh, will bring it yeah. to you. Yeah, I remember those yeah. ads. Yeah, 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 totally, and totally. Everybody knew that this was a technology that was coming. And so the question was, what's the business model around it? And that business model was set by the, the, the deregulation that I've talked about already and the consolidation that was allowed by the by antitrust enforcers who chose to let mergers happen. But it was also a result of a specific merger, which was the uh, when NBC bought Comcast, mm-hmm. right? which was similar to, to Disney buying ABC. It was the combination of distribution and content production. It was called a vertical merger. right? Mm. So it's not like NBC and Comcast were not rivals. They were a supplier customer relationship. So that was what what was happening there is Comcast was saying, we're going to make a bet that you're going to need to own your own distribution channel, just like Disney does. And we're going to make a bet that if you are a um, uh, if you're a distributor, you're going to need to own must have content. Mm -hmm. And the antitrust agencies looked at it and the FCC looked at it and said, "Okay, fine, we're going to allow this to go through and we're not going to be worried about their ability to use their content to promote their um, their uh, cable network and their internet service or vice versa. <laughs> um, and so what that said to everyone in the marketplace is vertical integration is a thing now. Go ahead and do it. And Netflix is sitting there having bought all of its content from studios yeah. up till that. It's just a distributor. And they're like, oh, well if Comcast is going to buy NBC, they're going to probably do their own distribution and they're going to cut us off from NBC content and universal content. So we're going to need to buy and start to make our own content. And so they started to vertically integrate and that's when they started to do um, their content production. So that was, um, what was their first one? That was the, um, uh, their first big show. House of Cards. Was that, that was the Fincher one? That was their big one, right? That was around then. It was like, the early 2000 teens. And that's when they, yeah. they really start to set the streaming model. The streaming model would be back to the studio system. That's what Netflix did. They were, they were, it was a defensive move against Comcast NBC. And it was because the enforcers had allowed that merger to go through. And then you could go back to the FinCEN rules and the removal of those. It was just because, you know, ideologically in the seventies, we were like conflicts of interest don't matter efficiency, you know, all these businesses are combining and doing whatever they want because they're efficient and we shouldn't get in the way. Why do you, why uh, do you, th- why do you think everybody went in on that? W- were we concerned about efficiency at that time or was it, were people just concerned with making money faster at that time? Like, why do you think that passed? In the 70s, why did this transition happen? Yeah. Why yeah. Did this, well, I, I mean, I wrote a book on it. It's called Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. It's, it's one of the great ideological shifts in American history. Um, it's, it's a, a couple of things happened. Um, so let's see here. On the, you know, there had been this traditional kind of populism in the in American culture that had been like the bedrock print, like the, you know, one of the core aspects of the American Revolution and going mm-hmm. back to the English Civil War and, you know, the Civil War itself, like this this fear of consolidated financial uh, power. So Frederick Douglass, prior to Civil War, he talked about how slavery was a result of the land monopolist, mm. right? I mean, the, the consolidated property ownership, it's not capital, it's um, concentration of power, 
right, hmm. in the form of, of massed capital, uh, which you could use to exclude others. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, you have a big steel plant. Like they wanted that. That's good to be able to mass men and capital to produce lots of stuff. But it's when you have the power to exclude others. Right. Um, that was a core part of the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party, things like that. Civil War, you know, a lot of the New Deal, a lot of aspects of American history. But um, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, there was a um, rev- like a, a certain, you know, parts of our like certain scholars never liked that idea. And mm-hmm. so there was a, a reaction against it from first from from socialists. This would be like John Kenneth Galbraith, Richard Hofstadter, C. Wright Mills in the counterculture. Mm-hmm. Um, they they thought, well, you know, if you empower small business, you're going to get a bunch of like, you know, hicks and uh, and like car <laughs> dealers that are going to like, right, you know, that are going to like do whatever they want. Right. And there was like a real like snotty academic um, elitist view of the world. Yeah, and that yeah. was like the left. Like that's the problem with the, I'm a I'm a you know, I tend to sit on the left. But that's like the problem with the left is like there are a lot of them are snobs. So very much. And, so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I like art. I don't like, you know, movie you know, popular movies. Right. You go so far left. They're very, they're, they're exclusing. They're very yeah. uh, exclusive in their own way when you're over It's there. just a lifestyle brand. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. anyway, so, th- but there was, there was a sort of an, an argument that, um, uh, and there was, there was like, a, a, they associated populist economic questions with things like that, the pop that like, like LBJ was sort of a populist. Well, they were like, well, that, that, he did the Vietnam war. Right. And, <laughs> There was like this mass discrediting of um, of that whole world because of um, uh, yeah for like the the a new the, the the Democratic Party in the 1970s the liberals in the 1970s got much more interested in promoting consumer rights environmentalism mm-hmm. civil rights and they stopped thinking about concentrations of financial and corporate power. That yeah. was not a problem to them anymore. So they would look at something like Walmart and they didn't care. They, they didn't want to protect the small store owner in the South because they thought that person was a racist, right? The, right. One of Ralph Nader, which, well, I mean, it was a ridiculous supposition, the idea that like, you know, people that run big companies weren't racist, but that's like how it's always, yeah. you know, how it's always like been, you know. Um, but right, because they're they're, uh, they're essentially hiding behind whatever that pretty logo is. You're not really seeing the faces of the people behind. Yeah, I mean, things. there's there's their their view is, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to over I don't want to like I, I have I don't like the way that they looked at it. But but one you know one guy um, who was writing for Ralph Nader's outfit, this guy named Mark Green, he wrote a critique of one of our antitrust enforcers and said that that's they they. They didn't have enough Harvard Law graduates, and they overvalued small businessmen. That they, he called them the "quote unquote" noble savage of the business world, <laughs> right? And this was like a thing. And this was on the left. There was like a, a lot of the Naderite consumer rights people were really hostile to the idea of promoting a certain way of doing business in the form of small, small dealers and worthy men. That's a phrase from the Supreme Court, which was always the <laughs> basis of the of like America you know, the American economic order was we want small business. Um, right. We want right. small like community control. And, um, and that like that, there was a real sustained aggressive attack on that ideologically from the left. Uh, Richard Hofstetter wrote a history of America. That was a very savvy form of history. 
in which he said that populists of the 1880s and 90s, which were a set of farmers who were like, we don't like concentrations of economic power. He's like, oh, they were just delusional and anti-Semites and xenophobic. And actually, Americans have, have always been kind of capitalist and there were really no ideological disagreements. We've we've just been like, there's just some people that have status anxiety. That was a big part of like, they, re, they basically recrafted American history to get rid of the idea of ideological debates about how to do business. And then the left decided that we were going to be pro-business or anti-business, like pro-consumer or pro-business versus yeah. understanding that how you do business is the key moral question. And right, so then right, right. And mor- moral is, a, is the big question because you just feel like morality is completely devoid from business at this point. Well, it's not devoid from business, but it's the the it's just where are where is the question, right? What question are you trying to what's the political coalition you're trying to put together? And how do you understand the point of um, how do you understand politics? It, there is no society that exists without business. The question is, how do you do business? You can do business and say, we're going to have a farmer's market without fraud. You can do business and say, we're going to have a derivatives market where fraud is legal. Mm-hmm. You can do business with, sl- you know, slave trading as a form of business. These are all, all have different moral valences. The, the Americans have always traditionally said, our politics is about deciding how we do business. And then in the 1970s, a lot of people on the left just started saying, we don't like business. We're anti-business, mm. which is crazy, right? The movie <laughs> business is a business. You're just saying, we want to make movies in a certain way, be able to sell into certain markets have some creative control and rise or fall on the strength of the product. Yeah. Um, and that's a form of business versus like, we're going to be told what to do and put that in front of a hundred million households, whether they want it or not. It's a different form of business. Um, and it's just a moral question about what kind of society you have. Right. So we started asking the wrong questions. And then the cons- on the right, there was a series of kind of corporatist libertarians that developed a whole series of tools and arguments about efficiency and said, look, the point is of our anti-monopoly rules is not to restrain concentrations of political and economic power. It's to promote efficiency. Mm. And if we're going to promote efficiency, we're going to get bring in these scientists called economists and they're going to make all the decisions. And so we're no longer, these things no longer, politics no longer encompasses questions of regulation or antitrust or corporate power. That's not politics. That's science. And we need to ask these economists how to make things efficient. And if you have ideas about how to run your industry, that is adorable. Boop on the nose. Go over there and shut up and argue about flag burning, right? That's what (laughs) happened in the 1970s. And there was this incredible ideological shift where people stopped thinking, well, the price of milk is too high. I'm going to complain to my politician. And because when they would go to their politician and say the price of milk is too high, the politician who in the 70s would have said, well, let's do something about that in the 1980s and 90s would say, shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just the market, right? As if the market is a metaphysical, natural thing that just happens instead of a thing that we structure through our laws and rules. So that was the ideological shift. Ah. And, And that's changing, right? That's why you see a lot of like antitrust cases against big tech. You see a lot of discussion about corporations, you know, Donald Trump was yelling at, you know, yells at CEOs all the time um, and mm-hmm. praises CEOs all the time. And like it was and you know, Biden is doing a lot of stuff on like semiconductors and and, um, you know, solar panels and stuff like that. It's like it's a return to this older form of politics where we're saying, actually, 
how corporations do stuff is really important politically. And these are political choices. And now we'll get back to Hollywood, right? Yeah. Because I think what's happened is that, you know, this strike is different than the 2007 strike. And what people are realizing is that there's something that's really screwed up in Hollywood itself. That's not just, you know, this, this strike, the frustration that writers have is downstream from some much more serious problems in the industry where like the industry can't break movie stars. Right. Which yep. is very weird. Yeah. Um, it's all Marvel movies and Star Wars movies, which I really enjoy them. But like, where are the mid-market comedies, right? Right. Um, what's going on, like with this with this wonderful industry? And I think that what we're seeing is that ultimately, when you consolidate power into the hands of a few, you actually lose the ability to do good business. Yeah. And that is what's happening. So the most obvious problem with the Netflix model is there's nobody auditing anything that they do. So nobody knows how any of their shows are doing. Yeah. And because no one pays for any of the shows individually or any of the movies individually, Netflix has no idea whether people actually like what they're putting out, right? right? All they know is whether there are more or fewer subscribers and they can kind of loosely associate it with people, you know, with like new content. But it's very different than like people are paying for Back to the Future. So right. you know that people like that movie and therefore the people that made that movie probably are good at making movies that people like. Let's hire them to do other movies and then mm -hmm. they can, you know, we're going to bet on the people who seem to have some sort of artistic connection with the audience. That doesn't – Netflix model doesn't work with that because you can't even figure out why anybody is even watching anything. They're not paying money. There are no prices. There's no market anymore. And all the second, so then that's that's the the, the problem with like the artistic piece of it mm -hmm. is like the, the the market is gone. So the price signals are gone. The other and the reason that now now we get to the strike itself, which is like has to do with the economics of Hollywood. Hollywood essentially organized itself around the principle that if you have high Nielsen ratings or if your your box office sold a lot, mm -hmm. that you know, everybody associated with that product would get a piece of it, right? And if you didn't do well, then you would get a piece of much, much less or nothing. Right. And, and that's I, the basic bargain at the heart of Hollywood. Right, and then right. people fight about like what per slice, you know, how big their slice of the pie is. But like the premise is there's a pie to cut to cut into pieces. Right, right. And, and that's been a negotiation tactic for for many, especially like younger filmmakers and it's like go in for points, go in for back end right. on this thing which they're sort of hit a period of time, I would say like at least 10 years ago where it was like you're never going to see fucking points. There's a hundred reasons why you're not going to see it. And it just seems impossible now. Like it doesn't exist at this point. Well, it doesn't exist because there aren't um, you know, the consolidation increased the bargaining power of the studios, but now there isn't even a pie. Because nobody knows how anything's doing. Yeah. Right. Including the studios, right? They're not doing well. Like streaming sucks as a business model. Yeah. So like yeah. you know, the the and they what the, you know, their solution, and this is the other thing that I put in the piece, is like they're like, well, our problem is, you know, it's too easy for consumers to switch streaming services. So what we want to do is have more mergers. We want to get down <laughs> to maybe instead of like six or seven streamers, we want to eventually get down to two or three mm -hmm. so that people don't have a choice. They have to, they have to hire, they have to buy those streaming services and we could just keep raising prices. And then maybe we'll just get our content from 
South Korea or wherever else is cheapest because whatever, you know, it's too much pain in the ass to deal with it. With, um, with the people. Ex- yeah, exactly. I mean, it, with with shows like Squid Games being so popular, like you don't, you don't feel like Netflix is sweating it. You know what I mean? You feel like they're just like, ah, whatever, we'll get Squid Games 2 and 3 and we'll barely pay those people anything. Yeah, they don't care. Um, and, and they don't, because they're not, it's like they don't need to have hits um, that you can put in theaters and sell to people. They don't need a back to the future. They don't need to pay for stuff because the consumer, you know, there's no, it's not like somebody else is going to come in and deliver a back to the future type of thing and make the money that they wouldn't because there's no market anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't go to the theaters and, and, you know, and say, Hey, you know, put this on the shelf and see if it sells. Mm -hmm. Um, That would ultimately discipline Netflix, but you can't like, or Disney, you can't, um, but you can't do that. And you see other in other ways, and this is like really interesting, like conservatives are really pissed at Disney, right? Because they're like, well, Disney has certain social policies that we are, we don't like. Right. And, but the premise underlying that is actually the same premise as what the writers are saying, which is Disney's too powerful. Yeah. Right. And I talk to conservatives about this sometimes and I'm, they're like mad. I have a lot of conservative friends and they're mad that, um, they're like studios are always um, Hollywood's always throwing, you know, stuff that I don't agree with in my face um, and I don't like it. And they're all liberal. And I'm like, Hollywood executives want to make money. Yeah. <laughs> what they want. Yeah. And they don't like, yeah, they have certain social preferences, but they want to make money. And they're like, yeah, well, they're willing to forego money to like put their stuff in and, you know, tra- you know, for their own progressive names. I'm like, have you ever met a Hollywood executive? Like, that's crazy. Yeah, like, no, just, I don't think so. The, there are no markets, right? They're guessing yeah. what people will want. And that's what the, the fundamental problem is. And I think that conservative, when I explain this to conservative, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And if you act, cause I'm, I'm like, look, the, um, uh, the, the passion of the Christ made a, like a zillion dollars. Not like mm-hmm. a movie I would see, but like, they were able to, you know, Mel Gibson was able to get that movie into into theaters and sell it, and the audience wanted it, right? Well, I mean, even it. if even if you were more local, like more modern with it, like the the new Top Gun movie, fucking crushed, crushed in theaters because it was so like middle America, like very basic. It wasn't really pushing any boundaries, and you know, it was just focused on Tom Cruise and 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 <laughs> in the Air Force. Like, I wanted to fly jets after I watched that movie. Like. I know that was- it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's a great movie. And I mean, okay. you can at least track that one because it went through theaters. Um, I, I, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I feel like a lot of agendas and stuff are being pushed. And it's interesting because they are, they can't track it because of, because of the streamers. And, but they're, but they can track numbers, right? That's the deal with them, right? They, they know yeah, how they, many people play things they can and click track on numbers. things. Yeah. Yeah, you can see how what people are watching, and that's sort of useful. But there's no, I mean, they're all starting advertising, so that'll be like that. They'll essentially come back to like a, a Nielsen's type of arrangement, but there isn't a Nielsen's for streaming, right? So right. there isn't. It's not apples to apples. It's Netflix. They're all going to have their own standards, and you still have the vertical integration problem. So it is probably going to improve a little bit, just because they're going to have. They're going to, when I say improve, like it's going to get a little bit better because they're going to have to disclose information to advertisers. But the thing that's interesting is that, you know, what the, what I think the studios understand is that they're not in a good business. And if there was some political leadership from the studios, 
they would actually say, we do need to be split up. This didn't, this bet on streaming didn't work. Please separate out streaming from production so yeah. that we can focus on one or the other. And I think they would, because um, then, you know, then Netflix, if it was just engaged in distribution, would be cutting deals to try to get, you know, to try to get better content. You'd, mm -hmm. you'd see a lot more innovations in terms of distribution. Uh, and then, like, they'd probably go out and try to buy stuff from, like, you know, TikTok creators. Like, it would be, like, this is an incredible time for content production. The idea that you have just, like, six really, you know, you have, I don't know, six or seven, like, just boring streamers that are not innovating, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It speaks to the bad structure of the industry. So I think, like, the point, one of the things about the strike that I uh, I think needs to like, I, you know, I think the writers are like, the big streamers are making so much money, they're paying their executives so much. And we, you know, it's not fair what's happening. I think there is a little bit of a, um, it's certainly true, but it, it's also like the whole business, like we need stakeholders from every part of the business to come together and say, this isn't working. Yeah. Like what we're doing isn't working. We need to get back to what was working, which was, an industry that was that was very profitable where people made stuff that audiences would pay money for and everybody had some profit margins versus now when you have this like really shitty com highly competitive low margin yeah. like low cost business right where everyone is just churning out like crappy hamburgers in hopes that someone will will buy them and like the audiences are unhappy too so it's like if everybody is unhappy it isn't like there is still going to be conflict between the writers and the studios, but fundamentally at some level, like everyone should actually get together and be like, let's just all admit this isn't working and get it restructured. take a break and uh, talk about some of the, the good companies, some of the people that I enjoy, some of the folks that truly support artists, whether they're just making equipment that we use or whether they're actually financing pieces. These companies really care about creators and they have people on their staff that really care about creators. And I spent an entire week hanging out with a lot of these folks, spending time having beers, talking about life. Um, I got to hang out with my buddy Victor, uh, Victor from Fujifilm. If you guys haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. You'll find it in the archives of the uh, show. But it was so nice. Victor was in town. I love hanging out with you, man. Him and I genuinely get together. We're really great friends. Um, and uh, there's nothing like going out to the bar with a buddy who buys you a t-shirt from the bar that you've been going to forever. And he's like, you should wear one of these. You know, when's the last time you had a bud do that? Um, but anyway, let's get into it. First up on the show, our friends at Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace to build a new machine, maybe you want to uh, build a new edit machine, maybe you're going to build a Photoshop machine, maybe you just need something beefier to uh, continue to run out all that AI art work that you're going to do. Um, so go to PugetSystems.com and build yourself a PC. It's a better way to spend your money. You can build the system that's upgradable. And what I love about Puget is that they don't manufacture hardware. These guys beta test, benchmark test 
all sorts of new equipment. They figure out what the best um, configuration based upon the software that you're going to use is. And uh, I, I, I can't say enough great things about them. Puget has been supporting me since the beginning. They've been a sponsor of mine for over six years at this point. Um, and they continue without question. doesn't matter how intense the marketplace gets. They're always there. And I love that about them. And if you guys are looking for a company with that kind of customer support, that kind of attention to the art and to the artistry of our business, and you got to go, you've saved up your money and you want to build something efficient uh, and build something that is a tool that works for you, don't throw it into one of these giant conglomerates. Don't throw it into the one of the biggest companies on the fucking planet, right? Support a family-owned company that really likes to support you. Go to PugetSystems.com. I can't say enough great things about them. And tell them, hey, man, if you're looking to build an editor, like let's say you're going to build a new uh, 4K, 6K edit machine, uh, ask them about my specs. Start there because I, I love my computer. Um, also supporting the show, our friends over at Fujifilm. Got to hang out with them, like I said, this week at Cinegear, and uh, they are always the best people to be with. Michael over there, uh, he uh, I just posted him yesterday, so he's in my stories today. Uh, Michael is one of the most, uh, the guy I go to whenever I'm like, how does this thing, where is this thing, and where in the menu? You know, there's something really great about the people that work there that really love the cameras and love photography. And everybody that I've met that works at Fujifilm at one point in time was either a photographer themselves or a filmmaker themselves, or they still are. So they get it. They really do. And if you're in the market for a camera, uh, it's the place to go. Um, if you like Gina has been using the GFX 100S for all her photography, uh, and it's gorgeous right now. If you've seen any of the stuff that she's done recently, um, check it out go to ginamanning.com and look at all the stuff that she's done with michelle um and what she's done with b miller all of our b miller photography has been shot with the gfx 100s i love that camera i love its color profiles um and uh the xh2s uh is the best camera for video from them i love the internal looks on that camera i love being able to shoot ProRes on that camera um and if I'm uh, using my um, Photo Deox adapters, and I put my PL mount adapter on there, then I can be putting cinema lenses on my Fujifilm camera. I cannot say enough great things about Fujifilm. They support us. They love us. They support the show. Um, and I've met all the different filmmakers. Go to InLoveWithTheProcess.com and check out our Fujifilm Filmmaker series and just listen to how much Fujifilm supports the arts. So if you're looking for a new camera, if you're looking for a second shooter, if you're looking for a high-end medium format photo rig, if you're looking, if you're someone that is a photographer that also has to do video, Fujifilm is the place to go for all of that stuff. There are links in the description of this episode. I also have links for refurbished Fujifilm gear because uh, I know a lot of you aren't working right now. We're in a weird place. Um, so that's where to go. Check it out. See if they got a good deal on the rig you want, that lens you wanted. You know what I mean? Fujifilm. Uh, supporting the show, our friends over at Boca, Boca Rentals. I just had a long conversation with Kyle from Boca last week. Uh, it's a weird time right now with the strikes and everything happening. There's a lot of large rental houses that are laying off entire departments of people. 
There are rental houses that are going to close their doors. And Boca is, you know, shutter. They're not even shuttering up. They're getting ready. They're supporting the folks that work with them or work for them. Um, and they know that uh, the future of this business is young cinematographers and young directors, and they love us and support us. So in this downtime that we all have, you might want to reach out to someone like Boca Rentals, see if you can get a deal on gear and start putting together that personal project, start putting together that proof of concept. And what's great about Boca is these guys have in stock all of the best lenses the stuff that you've seen, the stuff that you've drooled over when you watch your Netflix shows, or if you watch that latest, the Batman movie, all of that stuff is so fucking great. I've spent time going through their safes in the back with the owners of that place and just pulling off vintage lenses and just drooling over them. The past pieces, I just did my new film, Come Home, and I did the huge B. Miller campaign, all shot on the airy, LF, which I know isn't the latest airy camera, but it's still a fucking crazy beast. Um, and uh, we were shooting with all sorts of cook lenses from them. I love Boca. If you're in Los Angeles, if you're looking for a rental place, if you're looking for a place where they really do care about young cinematographers and young directors, just reach out to Boca. Tell them I sent you, and they'll give you a wink and maybe a deal. You know what I'm saying? Um, Lastly, let's make sure I get everybody. Yep. Lastly, uh, make sure you go over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. If you're a newcomer to the show and uh, you want to just cherry pick your way through episodes, maybe, just maybe, you want to uh, listen to some of the best of our show. I haven't updated this section in a while. It needs an update, but we do have a top 30 section up there. I highly suggest you listen to episode 226 with, a, with my buddy, director Joe Carnahan. Uh, he's off shooting a big movie right now. Him and I have been texting. I'm excited about his new piece. But uh, we also have episode 134 with uh, amazing illustrator Richie Beckett. We almost worked together on a project. If that had gone, we would have done something together. Uh, and sometime in the future, him and I are going to work together. And if you guys are, are, are fans, of other podcasts. Um, I've got some really great crossover episodes up here. I think one of the best crossover episodes ever is with uh, my buddy Ryan Conley from Film Riot. I know a lot of you came over to the show because you listened to Film Riot. You heard me on that. You should definitely go check out. We have two episodes, but the first one, episode 52, is a pretty funny. I give him shit because, uh, you know, I made my movie first, buddy. Um, and then finally, another great episode, because we're going back, 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 back in the catalog here. Go listen to episode 20 with Dale Rage Restanini. And uh, it's a fun episode for me because when I was in the business of doing music videos, he was our competition consistently. I was always like, this fucking Rage guy is just underbidding us and just getting all these videos. And he is known. He his resume has over a thousand music videos and he's done stuff for for snoop dog ti buster rhymes and he comes from a really interesting place and i got him on the show because i wanted to give him shit and it turns out we're friends <laughs> so uh yeah in love with the place to go to listen to the show all right let's get back to it with matt
I've been a director for years, and my friends are are uh, writers. And then I just spent the entire weekend out here in Los Angeles. They had a big convention out here, which is Cinegear, where all like the uh, the people that create equipment and gear they take over Paramount Studios, and it was hysterical. I'm just sort of walking through this event and it's just a collection of mostly cinematographers that are like looking around going are you working who's working what's happening what's going on and you see all of these uh you know these workers the, the, because at the end of the day and I, I get it with writers i understand why they're striking because they're treated like shit and they're such a commodity and when when these companies become so large and so 100% focused on profit and they you have you have no leg to stand on they're just going to run you in, in the fucking ground and like, I've seen it happen with my friends. I've been in positions like that where you have no negotiation skills whatsoever or, or no paths for negotiation because it's, it's been shut down. As soon as Disney owns everything, like, wh- how can you, they'll just go fuck off. We'll find this other guy. There's a line of you that are willing to do this for even less. And if you guys don't all figure this out, then like you said before, we'll go to Asia, we'll go to Korea. And there's a line of them that are excited to, you know, be Hollywood. It's true. But you know, it's it's interesting because it's not just the writers. That's like studio executives are unhappy too. Yeah. Right. Because they can't green light. They can't green light pictures the way that they used to be able to and, and make, you know, and be evaluated based on whether the movie did well or not. It just, yeah. that just doesn't exist anymore. Now they have to like go and be like, um, what does Tim Cook think? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like, just, and well, and we have to counterbalance Disney's investments in China based on what, you know, what, like there are all of these factors that are, that are, um, make it so that the people that used to run Hollywood, and I'm not just talking about writers, I'm talking about directors and mm-hmm. uh, product and producers and executives and, and actors like, and all of the associated businesses that made the, the the town work and that made good movies and that made a lot of money, they're not making money anymore. And neither are the studios. And that's what's so crazy is it's like what Disney, what Bob Iger is after is like power, right? And, yeah. and, and not money, right? They're not making money. That's like the crazy thing. It's like streaming sucks as a business. And I think that's the hardest thing is to be like, wait a second, this isn't even about profit. If it were about profit, they would be like, yeah, let's, let's, Let's okay, fine. The streaming that didn't work. Let's figure out how to get out of it. But like, it's not about profit. It's like it's about a lack of leadership to move the industry out of where it is. And believe me, a lot of times it is about profit. I'm not. I don't. Yeah. Not one of these people who's like kumbaya, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the fights about like big tech or pharmaceuticals or whatever. Like that is just about money. They're making a lot of it and they want to keep it. What yeah. is so crazy about this studio situation is that the quote, you know, the sort of like consolidated power centers are not doing well. Right. And so then you've got, you got like writers who are, who are like, I'm so mad because they're treating me like crap. And it's like, yeah, well it's, it's actually because vertical integration doesn't work as a good, like Hollywood itself is falling apart, which includes like all of these firms, like Disney's movies are not doing well anymore. Right. Like they're, they're having a lot of, you know, they don't like what's going on. Um, They just, everyone's afraid to sort of step out and do something. I, I believe that if, you know, the writers, you know, were like the writers have, have been the only people to step out and say something about this, about Hollywood is not working. Mm -hmm. And that is a really important step. And I do think though, that there are, it's time to build a bigger coalition 
That includes other stakeholders in Hollywood. If you really want to succeed at restructuring the industry and making it more fair, going to have to include the conservatives who are mad at Disney. I know it's like the writers are like, we hate Ron DeSantis, but like he's having a fight with Disney, right? And Disney has no problem working with anyone to maintain their power. And it's only the people that are trying to do something about Disney's power that have a problem working with other people right. who are trying to address Disney's power. And this is what you see in like, this is Jay Gould, you know, not Jay Gould. Um, yeah, Jay Gould, the robber baron who was like, I can always hire one half of the working class to kill the other half of the working class. Right. right. And that's, right. that's, that's the situation that we're in. So it's like, everyone is mad at the happiest place on earth, which is really weird, but <laughs> opens up political opportunities. And I think like this strike is a really good moment for people to understand the history here and understand what went wrong and to, to basically recognize that they're like, there is an American tradition here in to address these problems. And it's not just, we need unions and unions need to be treated better. It's also that we need to we need to take apart the concentrations of power that have ruined the yeah. great American art form. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show because I feel like you're articulating this in such a better way than I ever could. Because for, for me, I, I don't know all this history and I just, I'm looking around as a generation Xer and just sort of seeing big business, which I really didn't trust to begin with sort of taking advantage of all these different things. And and it's like, Oh, it's great. Now Disney owns Marvel. So now all the movies are going to be, you know, there'll be a, uh, a formula to the movies and there'll be a continuity. And I'm like, no, now they own all my comic books that I love. And now they own all these characters and you just start to see the manipulative hand that plays with this stuff. And as, right. as it's like, yeah, no, I mean, it's like, Oh, you know, we need one company to control rock and roll so that there's continuity in the flow. It's sure. Like, Fuck you. Sure. Then you get a fucking live nation. Then you get like one of these giant conglomerates that like any band can't make money on fucking tour at this point. And they're, they're hit a point where bands were trying to make money selling merch. And now the, the, the giant companies like, no, we take a fucking percentage of your merch too. It's like, how do you, how at this point, how do you make money as a musician where you're supposed to bust your ass, put your art out for free? It's put up on Spotify and they don't pay shit for anything. And then uh, you don't, you can't make money when you tour if you're going to tour in any large venues because uh, giant companies like Live Nation will take all of that fucking profit. So, how, like, I don't know how many musicians I've I know and that I've had on the show that are like, dude, we work in grocery stores and stuff. I I, I don't know how to make money as a musician anymore. And it, well. I'm it's it's interesting because because the guy who put together Li Ticketmaster Live Nation is a guy named John Malone. Um, he also helped put together uh, Discovery Time Warner. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, he's a just he's just really good at, at monopolization. I mean, but but the thing to understand about these guys is that like you know, Live Ticketmaster Live Nation again that was same year two thousand and ten. Um, and it, it was the same antitrust division that allowed it through. In fact, it was some of the same people at the antitrust division that approved both mergers. Mm. So the the it was a policy dis it's a policy regime that we're dealing with. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, as a Gen Xer, you know you don't trust big business, and I think Americans have never trusted big business, even after this ideological shift. But the point isn't you got to trust big business. The point is is what they say is oh well if you don't. If you don't do what big business wants, you know, then you, we won't have an economy, right? And that's like a big part of 
it's a big part of the dynamic. It's a lack of confidence in ourselves, in our own ability to generate commercial activity. Um, I mean, think about like, remember in 2019 when Jeff Bezos was saying, we're going to have uh, an Amazon second headquarters and all of those, uh, we, any city that wants Amazon second headquarters should bid for it. Yes. Yes. I'm just like, there were like 200 cities, like mayors that just threw themselves at his feet to be like, please put your, you know, we'll do anything for you. Um, that's like where, where we were a couple of years ago, where it was just like, we have no, uh, we have no confidence in ourselves and in our own ability to, to, uh, to actually build things and do things. We have to throw, you know, we have to just like worship the, um, the super wealthy as the only people who can, who can actually like make economic activity happen, even though it's ridiculous to presume that because it's not like John Malone has ever played a guitar or right, like, right, film right. something. like the people that actually make the movies or distribute them or like do the work are not these financiers. They're just like, you know, finance is important, but they're just middlemen. Right. Yes. And so like regaining that sense of confidence that we can set our own destiny is I think the core of the anti-monopoly tradition. It's the core of sort of like what we need to do to fix Hollywood. You're seeing it in, in our business to a certain extent, like um, th- there's a big, there's a big movement of it with like comedians and podcasts and you're seeing like, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, like Joe Rogan or like Tom Segura and all these uh, very successful comedians that are like, fuck the middleman. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to build my own empire. And and they're a hundred percent focused on a very specific audience. They're not worried about catering to the mass. It's like, I just need enough folks to support my thing. And then it's like, you know, they're essentially running their own small business at that point. Uh, and very successfully, you know, they're making lots and lots of money doing that stuff. And it's very anti that system. I, you just want more of that. And 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 why are we so timid with this stuff? Is it are we drinking the Kool Aid? Is this the kind of stuff that's just been marketed to us for so many years, and we no, believe think, in it? Or I, I think it's this this mass amnesia that happened in the seventies and eighties, right? I mean, I watched this in two thousand and um, in two thousand and. So in 2010, so there was a big debate in, during the during the financial crisis about whether to break up the big banks. Mm-hmm. And there was Sweden had a financial crisis in the early 1990s, and they effectively broke up their banks. And um, and so there was a debate about whether we should do what was called the Swedish solution, and or whether we should just bail out the banks. Right? Those were the two positions. And economists okay. were arguing, yeah, we should do the Swedish solution or not. Right? So. I ended up going to Sweden with a friend and I met, I actually, one of the cool things about working as a staffer in Congress is you get to meet with lots of people if you want to. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed this guy and was like, Hey, I, you are the Swedish bank regulator. Do you want to meet? Um, and he was like, sure. So I met with him and I asked him about uh, why they did what they, and it turned out he was the guy that had done the, the bank regulation in the 1990s when they broke up their banks. And I was like, why'd you do that? Where'd you get that idea? And he said, Oh, well, we just copied, um, we just copied what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did in the thirties, right? So this was from America. Um, so I then read an article from uh, where it was an interview of Obama and they mm-hmm. asked Obama, like, why didn't you break up the banks? Like there was this debate about the Swedish solution. Why didn't you do the Swedish solution? And he said, well, you know, America, very different country. Um, we have lots of banks. They only have a few, so it's not a big deal for them. It's harder for us. And besides, that's Sweden and we're America and we have different traditions in this country. 
That was it, huh? Did not know that Sweden got that idea from America. He just <laughs> didn't know. So if you think you don't, you're like, oh, I didn't know about any of this stuff. It's like, well, Obama didn't know about it, right? And what we know about our history and our traditions bounds bounds us and let, makes us think what is possible and what is not possible. And so like Obama didn't know that. I didn't know that at the time kind of really either. Yeah. And so it's like the critics of what Geithner was doing didn't really understand. We didn't have a historical tradition. We didn't know about the historical tradition that we were a part of, just like the other side, like didn't necessarily know about what was happening or about that historical tradition. And I think part of it is relearning our history and saying, why don't we just go back to some of the stuff that we used to do that worked? Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's way easier to do that. It's way easier to be like, when people are like, oh, you want to break up the studios? I mean, that just seems so impossible. It's like, well, we did that. Like we've done that multiple times. It's not a big deal. It works. Yeah. Right. But right. And then when we stopped that, like it all got screwed up. So why don't we just go back to that? And then it's much harder to be like, you're, you're doing something that's crazy and radical. It's like, yeah, as radical as Richard Nixon. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just, it's, it's like, it's very normy American thing to do. Right. Well, you know, and then we, you know, we're like education really doesn't seem to be our fourth. Like, I, who, like who cares about history? <laughs> That's the big well, problem. I think with, well, I mean, because you learn crap history, it's like boring and stupid, right? Yeah. You have to learn facts about things that don't matter. Like history is fascinating and wonderful. And it's like, because it's all about power. Don't, I mean, the, the, the problem isn't that we didn't learn history. The problem is we learned history that was wrong. Mm. Right. And if you learn history, that's wrong. Then you're bounded by like it's not like Obama had never learned about history. Like he had learned a ton about the New Deal. He just didn't know the some of the basics, or he just had a bad narrative in his head. It's not that we don't learn history. It's that we had bad historical narratives in our head about what we used to do. And so what essentially happened is a lot of the left thinks that the American left wing tradition is um, is essentially the European tradition. They think big government. Um, they think like. We need unions, we need regulation, we need big government. That is the American egalitarian tradition. It's Marx, right? They think mm -hmm. it's Marx. It's not. We have our own egalitarian tradition that every American like knows because they play the game Monopoly as a kid. It's anti-monopoly. It's break up big concentrations of power. Yeah. And everybody gets like, you know, the white picket fence. You know, you go back to Thomas Jefferson, the yeoman farmer. I mean, ideally without the racism this time, but like sure. that's an egalitarian tradition and it's part of the American, it is like core to who we are. And when you keep trying to say, we need to be more egalitarian like those Europeans do it, it doesn't make sense because we have a different, like we have a different, um, uh, well, I mean, it was the American dream, right? That was, I mean, the, the, the American dream was that you can come here with nothing, work really hard and build your own thing and support your family and build a business and find wealth in that business. And it just seems it's harder and harder to do right now. It's almost impossible it is, to do. You know? It is harder and harder. And you can see it in every part of our society, right? Like think about like one of the basic, this just to give you a sense of how radical the change was in the seventies and eighties, a very basic part of American history going back to the 1840s was the local doctor hanging up a shingle and, and being like, yeah, I'm your local doctor. Mm -hmm. And you know, the doctors were like, good or bad, they could be like, 
They could be like, uh, you know, we're opposed to government health care, blah, blah, blah. But, but the basic idea is like a doctor graduates from medical school, learns how to practice medicine and hangs up a shingle. There are no, when you graduate from medical school today, there is no way you are, ha- you are hanging up a shingle. Yeah. You are going to work for a large corporate practice in medicine because it is impossible to negotiate for good reimbursements with insurance companies and, and hospitals uh, for, you know, for the, for the things that you need, if you're going to do surgery or various other things. So it's just impossible to be an independent doctor. And that is like a, that is a really, really, really big change in how America works. So it's not just Hollywood. It's like fundamental in like a lot of different areas. And it's not because of technology. It's not because things are, you know, it's more efficient to be in a big business. It's because you simply cannot negotiate as a doctor with a multi-billion dollar insurance company that most of your patients use. You just don't have the bargaining power anymore. So you have to go work with a bunch of other doctors in a corporation that does have that bargaining power. It's very similar to Hollywood. It's like you could have made Back to the Future or a bunch of great movies. You do not have the bargaining leverage anymore with Disney to have any sort of creative freedom. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are a rounding error for a company like that. And even if you're Back to the Future does really well. It doesn't matter because it's on streaming and there's no aftermarkets and there's no revenue that's coming from it. So, yeah, I mean, we're basically dealing with the results of monopolies at this point, 100%. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we- I would have loved to have the, the Writers Guild if they were if there were one demand that they should put in that they didn't put in. And I, this is true for the screen actors and the directors, and I know the directors already settled, but mm-hmm. say... We will go. We will cut this deal with you, but we want to make sure that there are no more mergers. Yeah. If they asked for that, the studios would freak out. Yeah, of course they would. Of course they would. It's they're crazy. all hoping, you know, the, the, the Biden antitrust enforcers are good, and so there aren't going to be mer- you know Hollywood mergers until the Biden antitrust enforcers are gone. But once they're gone, the Hollywood guys are going to try to do it if they can. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. I, I appreciate you breaking all this down because it's it's just fascinating to hear, uh, you know, th- our history, <laughs> really, and the history that most people aren't talking about. And I feel like we're such a brainwashed society at this point where we're uh, upset at these streaming services, we're upset at these large monopolies, but then we're plugged into them. I mean, we're getting all our shit delivered by Amazon. Everybody's sitting and in, in plugging into the same services that aren't paying them the right amount of money. It's like we're just feeding these beasts to be as big as they are at this right. point. I mean, look, if there's one thing I would suggest to you, it's like it. you should feel empowered, right? Because this history is powerful. Mm-hmm. Like they hate it for a reason. You know, like, so it's not like we're not brainwashed. Um, we're not, I don't mean to be argumentative. I'm, I'm just an argumentative person, but like. Um, Do it, man. I love it. It, it is up to us, right? We can do this. We are fighting it, right? Like I didn't, like I learned this stuff recently. It's not like you have to, um, we're, there's, there's just a, there's a, Mergers and acquisitions have dropped by 70% this year from last year because antitrust enforcers looked back, said, man, we really screwed that up. And they've learned and said, we are going to do things differently. And so they are doing things differently. And I think it's important to recognize that like, we need to put this at the core of our politics 
because this stuff works and it's very, very powerful. And I would look at the Writers Guild strike as a moment of collective empowerment and collective learning, whether it works or not is a different, you can never really control whether things work out, but mm-hmm. like, that's really the key is it's like people in Hollywood are talking about this in a really fundamental way for the first time. And that is a prelude to action. It may, it may take a while, but I really feel like once people learn this stuff and they are learning it, um, and I could just see it in our, in the dialogue, I can see people, I could see like, it's a regular thing now in the press to be writing about antitrust in a different way. They didn't used to do that. Yeah. Like they're, you know, it was in the state of the union. The president talked about antitrust and talked about market power. Like it was, that's a huge deal. They didn't didn't done that since the, you know, since the, maybe the eighties or something, the seventies, eighties, like, and, and I mean, just go back and read that state of the union. Like it's slow, right? Cause it's a big country and it takes a while to change things and figure things out and stuff. It's like, it was happening. So you should be like, we can do this. And that is so important to realize we're not, this is not a society in decline, hmm. right? We're soaring, as as Stephen Colbert once said. We're soaring like the Hindenburg. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, dude, look, I think I think this is a good place to end it, Matt. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. Thank you for talking me through it. I just enjoy just listening to it, and uh, and and I hope that those of you listening feel like you know, understand a little bit more about how all this stuff is going on, and maybe it isn't just as cool as like you know mouse ears being able to uh, you know uh, create a continuity between all their movies. <laughs> There's a little well, bit more to I, it, I've man. Never heard of like licensing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Matt, if uh, folks want to follow you, uh, are you regularly putting out articles and stuff? Where can they go to read your yeah, stuff? So, so I have a newsletter. It's called thebignewsletter.com. Yep. And you go to thebignewsletter.com. And then I also, I'm on Twitter, which I use way too much, at um, Matthew Stoller, uh, so S-T-O-L-L-E-R. And um, yeah, I write about monopolies and... Um, uh, and, and market power, uh, lots of different ways. So it's fun. It's like a super fun area to like, think about and learn about. And, um, there's a lot of cool things happening on a policy level. So, well, dude, I'm happy. I'm happy you're doing it, brother. I really, California, the California legislature, the house, the assembly, sorry, it's the lower house of the assembly. They just passed a law. Uh, I think it has to go to the Senate, but the, the law would ban exclusive arrangements between Ticketmaster and venues. So oh. it's effectively a breakup Ticketmaster thing just in California. Really? Oh, do you yes. know? Do you know what the uh, the, the law is? <laughs> like the number? Yeah, I, yeah, you won't know offhand, right? Uh, let's see. It was it was um, forty out of. Oh yeah, here we go. Just Google California Ticketmaster, and then you'll get this. Uh, it's in Bill to loosen Ticketmaster's hold on sales approved in California Senate. Maybe it's not the so I said assembly. It's actually the Senate. That's I'm awesome. a liar. There yeah. you go. <laughs> uh, well, dude, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. Thank you for sharing with us, and uh, I'll check back in with you in the future. I, there's other stuff I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, you know, like the whole new AI thing and everything, and it, it, there's the whole other conversation. But it's interesting since you did mention like how technology is built based upon our laws and our rules i also feel like there hasn't been a lot of it just feels like from the outside that there hasn't been a lot of thought into the repercussions of 
this tech and how it's really going to destroy licensing to a certain extent. You know, I don't know if you feel that way. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I have, I think AI is really cool and yeah. I do some neat stuff. Um, and it could like, you know, we could have AI that like liberates us and, you know, helps us cure cancer. We can have AI that's like, you know, a super empowered leash for all of us. And I would prefer the, the former, although I always get former and latter confused. But yeah. You know what I mean. yeah, 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 yeah. No Skynet. <laughs> That's basically. I know. Actually, it's funny because like Skynet, I don't want Skynet, but like Skynet, it, it's like the real nightmare scenario is just like Skynet actually just writes shitty marketing copy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> There it is. Today's episode in the can. I hope you guys found it as interesting as I did. Um, as you noticed, I'm sure you noticed, uh, I was quiet for most of it because I was just taking it all in. Um, Matt has done the research. He understands the history and a lot of that history I had never heard and I had never heard of myself and I'm sure many of you hadn't as well. And there's been this frustration that we've all felt, right? We felt abused and taken advantage of. Um, you've heard me on this show go to dark places multiple times um, when I'm talking about the music industry and I'm talking about uh, trying to have a career, trying to live up to the American dream of what I always perceived the American dream to be, which is like you put your nose down, you work real hard, uh, you do great work and you will be rewarded for it. And it's been getting harder and harder and harder to do that these days. And so many of you listening to the show are coming out of school coming out into the marketplace loaded, loaded with debt, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of student loan debt. And if you're getting into the movie business, you're expected to work for free. You're expected to break your back. You're expected to do all sorts of stuff without payment. There are all sorts of arguments out there that I've been reading about where uh, there is uh, some folks that feel like you should be paid to do auditions. There are folks that uh, feel like you should be paid to write your scripts um, and not have to do everything on spec. Um, really, the working conditions have just been getting worse and worse for the artists out there because we just don't have, as you heard, we just don't have the negotiating power. And that really is the side effect of these giant mergers, these giant monopolies that have been formed. And um, it's nice to hear his thoughts and Matt's thoughts on this, and is he wrong? I don't necessarily think he is. I think that there is uh, a, a healthier industry in breaking up a lot of these monopolies. And I think it's gonna be a healthier industry for um, the people at these companies as well, the people that own these companies. Um, and the smaller fix may just be that advertising becomes a big part of the streaming service. And I know as a consumer, so many of us were like, I want to watch stuff without ads. I want to see things without ads. And then as consumers, we were like, oh, I want to binge everything. And I want to have, you know, everything easily accessible to me at any time of the day. But it really has changed the way we process stuff. And things just, A, don't feel as special anymore. B, as a, as a filmmaker, I'm afraid to be put on to one of the largest streaming services and just get lost in the sea of everything. I mean, so many of you have been asking me why 
Mike, why don't you just put your movie up for free on YouTube? Because you won't know about it. You wouldn't have known about it. So many of you that have been complaining that you haven't been able to get my movie in time, you wouldn't have the ability to complain about it. Right? It's, it's a, a strange decision that I made to make something interesting that goes against the, the way that it's, it's done. And I think all of us could do this. Matt makes a really good point. When did we become so insecure in our own abilities to do things? When have we become so insecure in the fact that we can run small businesses and small businesses can create an economy that can, that can thrive? How did we get to this point? You know? And I don't know. There's a big piece of me that works in this business and I make ads and I do things and I know there's a lot of brainwashing that's in there. I feel it. There's a lot of brainwashing that's there. And so many of us get distracted. We start arguing about stuff. Stuff that's important, but not as important as this, man. You know, at the end of the day, you often feel like the big boys that are in the middle of doing like some big merger or confusing us or distracting us with some sort of, you know, you know, issue of the moment argument. You know what I mean? And they like to keep us angry. They like to keep us charged up with each other and we're fighting amongst ourselves while these big, 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 big ships are just merging, you know, and taking over everything. It's crazy. Um, so I'll put all the links in the description of today's episode for Matt's stuff. I'm going to get off here on Hard Hustle and try to put it out as soon as I can for today. I'm a little late on, on uh, Tuesdays episode release and i've been a little late the past couple weeks just because i've been so busy i but don't worry about it i have a week of podcast planned that i will have queued and ready to go back to our regular schedule a regular release schedule on tuesdays and thursdays um so lots of great stuff on the way i think this is a good episode hope you guys enjoyed it i'm happy that uh, matt came on and uh, if you guys have any questions, I'm sure you can reach out to Matt. I'll put all of his stuff in the description of the episode. Let me know what you thought of today's show. Did you like it? Did you learn something from it? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Send me notes on Instagram and uh, we'll go from there. All right, gang. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to work. I'll see you later. Stay safe. Uh, make some shit while you're waiting for everything to start back up.